This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout this podcast, we have heard the official version of the night of the Stocks family murders. In this episode, we will hear the details of that night from Heath Stocks himself. We will be hearing from Rob Evett, Mac Carter, Charles Peckett, and Heath Stocks. In a previous episode, Rob Evett shared with us what he went through at the hands of Jack Walls. During our conversation, he also shared with us his memories of January 17, 1997. While Heath was having dinner with his grandparents, Rob was at the high school, having recently taken on a new project with the band director. When I was in high school in, in Lone Oak, I was in band. And when I had first went to college, I was a music education major and wanted to be a band director. And at some point in, in 97, I had come back to Lone Oak. I was living back home with my mom and dad. And I knew the band director that was at the high school. And I was kind of in between college and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with everything. And I had approached the band director about putting together a pep band for, for the high school basketball team. We had always had marching band, but we had never had anything for any of, you know, basketball or the other sports. And when I was in college, I played in the basketball pep bands and really enjoyed them. And so I was given the green light to basically put together a pep band for the Lone Oak High School basketball games. And uh, we got together a group of people and we went to the game that night and set everything up and we, you know, started playing. And, and I didn't realize that where we were set up was actually right in front of where the cheerleaders were. And I had known Heather for a long time, obviously knowing, knowing Heath and knowing the family, you know, I'd known her since she was much younger. And of course she was on the cheerleading squad. And as we started playing, she and I started talking. And during the downtime between playing songs and we started talking about what songs we were going to play and, and what cheers they knew and how we were going to coordinate everything and started having some fun with the cheerleaders. You know, one of the things we would do is we would start out the fight song and then we would slow it down really, really slow. And Heather and the other girls on the team, they would start laughing because it was so slow. They couldn't do their motions and do their cheers and everything. And then the second time through, we would play it so incredibly fast that that they couldn't keep up with it. And she and I had a really good time talking that night and talking about what we were going to do and what was coming up. And when the game was over, you know, I went down and talked to her some more about, you know, how everything went and told her I had a really good time that night. And we started discussing that to, to take a look at some of the other games that were coming up and some of the, the songs that we knew and some of the cheers that they knew and try to figure out how to start coordinating all this. And, you know, it was kind of funny because Heath had always said that, you know, Heather was off limits to all the guys. And a lot of the guys had never you know, asked her out. And I don't even know if she was even dating anyone at the time, but she was a few years younger than me. But, you know, as we were talking and, and we had kind of tentatively made plans for later the next week to try to get together one night and I started thinking that maybe I should ask her out. Maybe she'd want to go out tonight, you know, after the game and go somewhere with Sonic and grab something or whatever. And and I, I held back and I and I didn't. And when we parted, I said, well, I'll, I'll call you later next week and we'll get together and discuss everything. And that night I stayed uptown for a little while and back then used to cruise town after the games. 
I lived about five minutes from Heath and Heather. We all lived out in, in Furlough, the little community, about 15 minutes outside of Lono. So I, I lived fairly close to them. And as I was going home that night, I took the interstate and happened to look over. There's a, a section of, of the interstate and the state highway that run parallel for probably about three miles, maybe. And I looked over and I could see police cars, blue lights. And, you know, I'm on the interstate I'm driving however fast I am. And they're driving faster than I am on the state highway. And I remember, wow, I wonder what's going on. Something must have happened. And then it was the next morning that I get a phone call from a friend of mine that told me what had happened. And it kind of hit me that those blue lights were going, you know, those were the police cars going to her house. And of course, I didn't even know what to think because by the time I had gotten the phone call, I mean, it was less than 24 hours prior that, you know, we were just talking and having a good time and having fun with the music. And she was laughing and I was laughing with her and we were going to get together later that week and talk about what we were going to do with the band and the cheerleaders and how we were going to work together to make it fun and to, to try to do this thing and to try to keep it going. Needless to say, that was the only time that that, that band played. I, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't do it after that. During our interviews for the podcast, we ask a few people if they thought that Jack Walls might have been involved in the murders of Heath's family. And we wanted to share a couple of these opinions with you, namely Matt Carter and Charles Peckett. So you think that Jack ordered the killing of his family? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that as much as anything, he had reason to do it. We do know what happened to Mr. Hogan being ostracized. People had motivation not to stand up to this family. And the way things can happen in a small town, especially down here, things can happen and no one will open their mouth because there will be reprisals. Once the outsiders get out of the way, sooner or later, there's gonna be some things not necessarily physical, but uh, you will be somewhat ostracized from the community. Apparently, that's what happened to the Hope, Mr. Uh, Cletus Hogan. And so, I don't know where the tentacles went from the Walls family, but Jack Walls Jr. definitely had motivation to keep his power because he was one of the pillars of the community. And that came with a lot of privilege. His number one privilege was having a host of young men every year come aboard, new victims that he could control in the last and feed his perversions off of. So he had plenty of motivation to keep things quiet. Who do you think stood the most to gain with the stocks dying? It was Jack Walls. And who had the most to lose? I had the most to lose was Heath. The, uh, I've said that all along, that if you really look at this story, why in the world would Heath want to kill his parents? I can almost, I can understand, I, I'm not saying it's right, it definitely is not right that he shot his dad. I can see that he shot his dad, but his mother and his sister, I, I just don't see that. I just can't see that he shot his mother and his sister. I think that somebody else was there. And Jack Walls had the most to lose. If that got out, that he was in bed with Heath, and got out to the public that he was in bed with Heath, then what would happen happened when we started the investigation. It blossomed out. 
people started talking, saying, yeah, this happened to me. Yep, this happened to me. And it started blossoming them out. That had to be stopped. And it was stopped when that family was killed. So you think Jack has something to do with that? My opinion? Yeah, my personal opinion is yes, he did. Whether it be verbally or he physically shot somebody. But he had something to do with it. Did he tell you that Jack told him to kill his parents? Yes. Did that surprise you? No. At some point, his parents became a threat. And when his parents became a threat to him, then he's going to eliminate them. According to Heath, a few weeks before the murders, he and his father Joe had gotten into an argument at the house because Joe had been rough with Barbara. Heath told his father to never lay a hand on her again. This led to a physical altercation between Heath and Joe. While on the ground, Joe had his hands around Heath's neck and told him, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. Heath ended up moving out and moved in with his mother's parents. Soon after, his mother called him and asked him to please move home, and they would figure it out. He still had his pending DWI charge to deal with, and his father didn't like the way people were talking about Heath leaving home and moving in with his grandparents. Heath agreed to work it out and moved back home at Barbara's request. I remember coming home that night. Mom was in the kitchen. She was cooking. And she had written me a note because she didn't know if she was going to catch me before they left. My sister was in the back. She was getting ready. She had her cheerleading uniform on. She was getting ready to go cheer at a basketball game. So mom had left a note. She said, look, I left you this note. I was making some food for your dad. If you want some, you can eat. You know, he hadn't come home yet, but when he does, he's going to shower, and we're going to go to the game. But your Uncle JT is here from California, and he's over there at Grandma Grandpa's house. So they would like you to go out to eat with him. So I got cleaned up, dressed, and went to Dorothy's house. They lived probably, I don't know, two miles away, three miles away. They lived in furlough with us. I go over there, and of course, Uncle JT, that's my Grandpa Martin's little brother from California. Of course, you know, he's my Uncle JT, and I don't see him very often, maybe once a year, if that. So it's always good to see him. So we all pile in the vehicle, and we're driving to Jacksonville to the Western Sizzler, which was a very popular place that offered steaks and make potatoes and a salad bar and all you can eat bar and growing up we went there on a regular basis. So I don't remember how it came up, but apparently my dad had been talking to my grandpa and my grandma a heck of stocks and Benny over how much money I had cost him going to college and failing. And that I had these pending charges against me. Uh, when I was up at college. And they were telling me, which is the first time I'd heard it, that my dad was not going to pay the fine. He wanted me to go to jail and sit in jail so I worked my fine off. And maybe it would be enough to motivate me to do something with my life. So I was angry and upset. And, you know, to hear these things, you know, not directly from him, but to know that he shared with them. And here's Uncle JT, and you know, and they're all talking about it. And it's hard to ever talk about my dad around Dorothy, especially around Martin, his dad. 
looking back, I wish that I could have talked to my uncle JT about, you know, maybe going to California for a fresh start. But I was so lost mentally in my own world that I couldn't see a way out. And the few outs that I considered had closed up very quickly. We went to Walmart after that. He was trying to fix something. He had to stop and get some kind of plumbing supplies or something at Walmart. And then we went from there, we went back to her house. And so we get to her house. We talked for a little while. I leave. And I'm reflecting on all this stuff. Dad, everything that they had said, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I may, maybe just go to jail. You know, I, I can just remember driving slowly home, you know, kind of just lost in this funk. And um, turn down a road, go down the road, pull up to the house, and I look back, and as I'm pulling in, and I can see a brown truck in the pasture. And Jack used to park his truck out there. And what it was is the way our house was, we had chain link around the yard, and we had a pasture. In that pasture, my dad had got rock poured so that he would have a place to park his semis and trailers out there by the house. And there was a big round spot out there where he could turn around. Jack, anytime my dad had a trailer and he'd come over the house, he'd park his truck back there. And if you weren't paying attention, when look, you could drive by the house, the trailer is the block you see in this, this truck there. So I saw his truck. And I pull up, and, you know, my stomach's just knots. I've got this sense of dread. Don't know what's going to happen. And so I turn the car off, and I get out. I remember how cold it was and how walking on the gravel and how everything, there wasn't any wind. It was just very cold. And so I walk up to the house, and I open the door. I walk in, and lights are off. There's a light on the kitchen. And to the left is our den. So I can see light flashing in there, which is usually, you know, what you see when the, the TV is on. Because our couch and everything faced that doorway and the TV was against that wall. So I walk in and there's Jack sitting on the couch. He's just like he's at home. And he's got a remote in his hand. He's flipping through channels. And he's looking at me over the top of his glasses. And I can remember seeing the, the reflection from the TV shining in his glasses and how he's flicking the channels. And it's just very surreal, the lighting, you know, that blue TV lighting in a dark room and how it makes everything look so dark. And off to the right, back where Dad moved, the gun cabinet, I could see a silhouette back there. And I knew who it was before I even saw him. And, uh, of course, it was Wade. And <clears throat> I remember looking at him and him looking at me. Jack saying, you know why we're here? And he told me, he said, you caused this. You did this. And about that time, I hear wheels on the gravel outside. And, of course, we had a gravel driveway, so you know, anytime that you pulled off the main road and 
filled with the house, you, you could hear the wheels and gravel. And so, you know, I hear somebody pull up and I hear, hear the engine cut off and Wade walks up to me and hands me the pistol. It was my dad's 45. And, um, about that time I heard the front door open and Colonel walked to the, to the kitchen and it was Heather. And so she comes in and she, she said, he what happened, what happened? And, you know, because the, the house is a mess and uh, there were papers in the floor, the drawers have been opened and so she walks to the kitchen and she said, have we been robbed? Have we been robbed? And I'm, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm like, no, Heather, I need, I need you to go. I need you to go. And I need you to get out of the house. And she said, no, no, I need to, we need to call 911. And she, she goes over there, she picks up the phone. And I, I told her, I said, Heather, please, please get out of the house. And she turned and looked at me. And I walked back into the living room. And I got out on my knees and I stuck the gun in my mouth. And I looked at him. I looked at Jack. And I tried to squeeze the trigger. And I just couldn't. And I remember him laughing at me and calling me a coward. And Wade stepped forward. He stuck out his hand. I gave him the gun. I felt him step behind me, walk into the kitchen. I heard Heather scream, Bubba, and I heard a shot. Wade walks back into the living room. And Jack looks at me and says, that's that. Out of time, I hear another vehicle pull up, which has to be mom and dad in the van. And... Next thing I remember hearing is mom opening the door. She comes in. I hear her scream. And she runs the door, and I can hear her screaming for Joe. And so she runs back over where I'm assuming Heather was laying on the floor. And my dad comes to the door, and I want to say mom said, she's gone. And Wade handed me the gun back. I got up, I walked into the kitchen, and I'm just the gun hanging out my side. I'm, and I was trying to take everything in. Heather's laying on the floor. Mom's over there by her. Dad's got the phone in his hand. Mom's screaming. And she looked up and she sees me. And she says, Joe. And my dad's gone around. And I, was, and I want to say he's screaming that he rushed me. And I took a step back and I pulled up the gun and I shot. And he kept coming. I shot again. He dropped. He was crawling towards me. I shot again. And I'm just standing there. And mom, mom's over there screaming. No, no. I feel Jack step up behind me. He says, somebody shut that bitch up. Mom's sitting there screaming. And so Wade's there beside me. He gets the gun. He walks over the drawer. He gets a knife. Jacks his shell out. 
puts another one in, raises his hand, shot my alma mom right in the ear, and she dropped. He walked, pop, pop, shot them, made sure they were dead, picked up the cases, and walked over and stood in front of me. When Wade paused in front of me, I did not know if I was going to be next. Because I had not done what Jack told me to do. And that was to fix the problem. The problem that I created when I told mom and Heather about what he had been doing to me. <laughs> but Wade had picked up the shell cases. He gave me the gun. It was a plastic bag of stuff that he gave to me. And Jack told me, he said, you caused this. You did this. And I remember walking out to my car, putting the stuff in the car, and going to the only place that I know I could. And that was back to Arkadelphia. As far away as I could get, I guess in my small little world, Emily, going back to the people that I had shared with, I had talked to about Jack, anywhere but there. And I'll never forget going up there. I realized the jewelry was in there. I took it in the, I threw it in the dumpster. And then I realized the guns, I threw it in the river. I threw some other stuff in the trash can on the way over to where Keith and Kelly lived. And I get over there and I you know, wanted to talk to Keith. You know, I shared so much with him and I just wanted a safe place. I needed to go somewhere where I felt safe and could talk to somebody. And that they cared. And he wasn't there. And Kelly was. And so I went over there to Kelly's sick. Um to my stomach about everything that happened and um, I can remember puking in her bathroom and I'll never forget asking her if I could use her phone and calling home because I could not believe what happened happened and I remember telling Kelly who said nobody's answering something's wrong it was so surreal I called home and I don't know if I expected either them to answer or Jack to answer, but I needed somebody to answer just to grasp reality again. It was that devastating, mind-blowing. And so Kelly went to the store. She got me something that had codeine in it, some cough syrup or something, and um, I drank it. And I laid down and <sighs> woke up the next morning to boom, boom, boom on the door. And um, the police looking for me. And uh, it's been a nightmare that I've never worked from ever since. I didn't know it was going to be that night. I didn't know what was going to happen. But with everything that happened with Doug, there was a part of me that wondered if one of the other boys wouldn't be end up shooting me or shooting them or what would happen. But... I do know this, that if I had not been a part of that, I would have died there too, because it would have been just as easy for the crime scene to have been set up, them get shot, and me 
commit suicide. And there have been no questions. And with everything that my dad had been telling family and friends about his frustrations and me and the problems, it would look like this 20-year-old kid that lost his mind and killed his family and then committed suicide from the grief of taking the life. I truly believe that. If I had not been involved, Bestie would have died, and I would have died right there with him. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. Nobody would have ever known. I talked to multiple people. I had people reach out to me afterward that knew Wade and that Wade talked to. And Wade had told them that Jack tried to force him to go. And he, he didn't want to go. And he told him that if he did not go, his family would be next. It's one of the reasons why I never brought up Wade. Because I felt guilty for Wade even being there. Because I refused to do what Jack told me to do. It got Wade dragged into it. And I felt guilty that he been forced to be a part of something he didn't want to be a part of. Neither one of us wanted to be a part of what was happening with Doug and Cletus. Neither one of us wanted to be there that night and be a part of what happened there. And he damn sure didn't want to be a part of having to kill his own parents and siblings either. But we weren't ourselves. I don't blame Wade. I'm not trying to shift responsibility and make this about Wade because Wade was just as much, if not more, of a victim and manipulated into what happened as I was. But what's frustrating is that after everything that came out about Jack, when people started asking questions, and Wade was going around telling people that he knew things about the crime scene, about what things happened, and that if I deserved to be in prison for the rest of my life, so did he. People started asking questions. Jack said several different things when he came to see me, and I repeated some of those things later on to different people. He did say that he was going to help he was going to do everything in his power to help me out of the situation. But he reminded me that I caused this, that I had done it. And I remember him making some comment about him being right about me and me not having a conscience. And I said that several times over the years. I never understood what he was saying. But later on, I was like, did I inadvertently repeat something that hurt me, that he intended to hurt me? Because I did have a conscience. I've always had a conscience. What happened devastated me, and it hurts me in my core this very day. I mean, my sister was beloved by everyone. She was popular in school. She was smart. She was beautiful. She was my best friend. She had helped me in so many things. And... I miss her every day. You know, we used to talk every day. And, but it's hard. It's hard to look around at this 6 by 9 cell and all this concrete steel and feel courageous. That makes me feel like a coward. But I didn't stand up. That I didn't fight. That I couldn't fight. That was one of the things that always got me over the years. I had all these people that asked me, said, why didn't you shoot him? And, it never even dawned on me. 
I thought about shooting myself, but I never once thought about shooting him. In addition to the multiple documents that we have and have discussed throughout this podcast, we do have a couple of notarized affidavits that we wanted to share as well. They were obtained and provided to us by Samantha Jones, who is currently writing a book on Heath's story. We have left out their names to protect their privacy. These have never been heard before and are available for legal inquiries. The first one being from a friend of Wade's, and it says, I, being 21 years or older, do hereby state under oath that I have personal knowledge and I am competent to testify to the following facts. In this affidavit, she states that during 1994 and 1997, I was a student at Lone Oak County High School. It was during this time that I became acquainted with Heath Stocks and his sister Heather, both fellow students. In addition to being acquainted with Stocks, I was also acquainted with Wade Knox, a fellow student and neighbor. During the course of my friendship with Wade, we frequented the same gatherings and interacted with mutual friends. In 1999, I saw Wade at the depot where he arrived intoxicated. Wade didn't live far from me at the time, so I got in his truck and drove him home. During the drive to Wade's house, Wade began stating, he made me do it. I didn't think much of his comments as I believed he was just intoxicated. Upon reaching Wade's house, Wade asked me to wait a minute before going home. It was at this time that Wade told me of his presence at the scene and his participation in the Stocks murders. I was aware of Heath's prior confession to the Stocks murders and found Wade's comment confusing. Wade clarified by stating he killed Heather and Barbara Stocks, Heath's sister and mother. Furthermore, Wade stated, You don't understand. Jack was there too. He made sure I finished the job. At this point, I insisted Wade go to the house, and I left for home in tears. The following morning, I went to see Wade again at his home, seeking clarification of his comments to me the night before. He confirmed his prior statement, saying, I'm sorry, but it's true. I was devastated by his confession and told him that he had to turn himself in. Wade insisted that he could not, and that I also could never tell or, quote, something awful might happen. I was unclear if what he said was an actual threat or if he was simply scared. I assured Wade I would not tell anyone the information given to me, but I did ask him for more details. He stated the following. Heath and his father Joe got into it, and Heath shot him several times. Heath wouldn't, quote, finish the job, so Jack made Wade finish it. Wade shot Heather twice, once in the chest area and once in the head. Wade shot Barbara. Charles Jack Walls III was present and witnessed everything. I never discussed the things Wade told me after his confession to me. I was scared. After Wade's suicide in 2003, I tried to talk to others to see if anyone else knew of the information that Wade had shared with me. Numerous individuals confirmed knowing the same information but refused to come forward, even warning me not to say anything. Regretfully, I have not until now. This is signed and dated April 20th, 2018. We also have an affidavit from the widow of Wade Knox. Her affidavit states, I, being 21 years or older, 
do hereby state under oath that I have personal knowledge and am competent to testify to the following facts. On several occasions in my presence, Wade would become upset, inconsolable, and fearful of walls for numerous already stated reasons, but also because of the knowledge and information of the Stocks murders that Wade concealed yet confided in me. Those items include but are not limited to Wade was present at the scene of the Stocks murders at 771 Johnson Road on January 17, 1997. Walls was present at the scene of the Stocks murders at 771 Johnson Road on January 17, 1997 to ensure the Stocks murders occurred. Heath Stocks arrived after the robbery of the Stocks home was staged. Wade, under duress and control of Walls, shot and killed Barbara Stocks and Heather Stocks. Heath Stocks, under duress and control of Walls, shot and killed his father, Joe Stocks. Wade lived in continuous fear and paranoia of Walls until his death in 2003. On July 20, 2019, Sword and Scale podcast released episode plus 52. I was interviewed on April 24, 2019 for this episode. Included in my response is the following. Because it wasn't just Heath there, it was Wade, Jack, and the deal was that if Wade didn't participate, they were going to repeat the process at his house. And Wade said that Heath shot his dad, and he just kind of fell apart, and he couldn't kill his mom, and he couldn't kill his sister. Wade said that Jack made him kill his mom. So here's Heath. He's sitting in prison all these years for killing three people. This boy was so scared of somebody locked up in a jail cell that he can't tell the truth. And if he did, who would believe him? And then here I am, sitting on the truth for all these years. This is dated January 21st, 2020. After sharing his story with us, and talking more about Heath and what he's been through, Rob decided that he wanted to get on Heath's visitation list and go visit him again after all these years. Can I talk to you about what made you want to go visit Heath again? There wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about everything that, that happened. I mean, everything. Jack, Heath, Heather, the other boys, because there was so much stuff that, that had happened with so many different people. The number of triggers is almost infinite between people's names and places that I've been or anytime you would hear someone going to prison or I would hear the name Jack or hear the name Heather. And so I had always kind of thought in the back of my mind that I always wondered what he was doing. And in life, you know, actually, I think Doug said it, you know, life kind of gets in the way. And you get married, you get a career, you have kids, and you try to figure out how to get your life together. And I'm not going to say that you forget, but it does become kind of out of sight, out of mind. And the resurgence with his case and the interest in, you know, the Boy Scouts and the abuse that's happened nationwide obviously has kind of brought everything back into the spotlight again. And especially for me, it's really kind of hit me in the face. It made me kind of realize that Heath did something that he shouldn't have done. I don't know to the full extent exactly what that was, because there are some questions about everything that happened, but it's not my place to decide his punishment. But I do know that I don't think that he got the support that he needed. I don't think that he got the fair shake that he could have gotten. And even though it may be later than what it should have been, 
I would like for him to know that those of us that were bonded through this horrific event, you know, we're all still out here. And, you know, we can all use that knowledge that in some way we're all still together. We went through this, we have this commonality that we share. And now that we're older and we can deal with it and life is not in the way anymore, this gives me an opportunity to go see him. And I don't know if closure is the right word because it's really not. It's, I mean, seeing him now would almost be reopening instead of closing anything. But to let him know that, yeah, something happened and it did happen, but there's still people that think about you. There's still people that still want whatever the best is that he can get. I want that for him. I want him to know that we all went through this and we're all hurting and healing in our own different ways. And maybe there's something that with the two of us talking and, and meeting, maybe there's something that will help one of us heal. And, and if it does, then it's worth the time to go to go do it. I really appreciate that. Was there anything else you wanted to share? I don't even know at this point. Uh, like I said, the past three or four weeks have been just kind of a, a big thing. You know, I mean, I guess talking about Heather, you know, one thing that, that I still do, my father passed away about 13 years ago. Concord United Methodist Church, which is where Heath and Heather went to church, there's a cemetery there. And that cemetery is actually my family cemetery. My great-grandfather is from that area and at one time owned many, many plots in that cemetery. And that's where my dad is buried. And he is buried probably no more than 100 feet from Heather and, and Joe and Barbara. And, you know, every time that, that I go see my dad, I still, you know, I still go down there and see her and, and Joe and Barbara. And, you know, there is a, I don't know if it's survivor's guilt, but I still think back to that night. Had I asked her out, had she have gone, had we decided to go somewhere, get something, would she have come home at a later time and maybe that would have been avoided? I might have taken her home since we lived that, that close together and I might have been there when everything would have happened. And that's hard for me to deal with sometimes to think about that, the, the what ifs with that. I still probably, you know, I'll probably visit her once a year. You know, anytime I go to see my dad, I go to see her too. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that's a lot. Yeah, it is because you just, like I said, the, the what ifs just kind of just kind of take over and you have to not let them do that. This whole thing that is just coming to the spotlight again after so many years of, of, of it finally, <laughs> you know, kind of kind of being put to rest and in, in, in my rearview mirror. And then all of a sudden it's it's, you know, back up in my life again. To be very honest, I'm in a very good, solid, stable place in my life right now. And, you know, this is probably the best time that all of this is going to come back up. So I'm so happy to hear that, that you're in a good, solid place. Yeah. Like I said, I, I'm, uh, I guess, excited is the right word. I mean, Heath was my friend. I'll be happy to see my friend. I will. I'm excited to, to see someone that I haven't seen in, in 25 years or better. And, you know, the last time I saw him was sitting in a courtroom across the aisle from each other. And the last time that we saw each other, it was kind of a smile and a head nod. A unsaid, hey, how are you? And I'm good. And, you know, and so now we're, I guess we're going to pick that conversation up 26 years later and, you know, and see how it goes. In the next episode, we will discuss Heath's multiple attempts to have his case looked at again and to be granted clemency. Did Jack's control and alleged involvement in the murders have any impact on Heath's future clemency attempts? 
Are there any options available to Heath that could help him receive a reduced sentence? After all of these years, have the conflicts and corruption continued? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.